listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. A couple years ago on a Joe Rogan podcast, he had on the, he's an astrophysicist, Curtis. Yeah, Neil deGrasse Tyson. That's right. And he said this thing, this man, it's just stuck with me for years. And he talked about truth. And he said there are three, three types of truth. He said there is um, objective truth, which is a truth that is tr- it's something that's true for everyone. It's measured. It's factual. It's what science produces, objective truths. Then he said there's personal truths. And personal truths only apply to you as an individual. Objective truths apply to everyone. And then he said there's the third one is political truths. And he said basically that's when something gets repeated enough, then when the masses believe that it's true, it becomes a political truth. So you're about truth in hunting, Robbie. So what Mm -hmm. does truth, what does truth mean to you? Jeez. Not a softball question out of the gate, huh? I thought we were going to no. ease into this a little bit. But Okay, um, let's talk about turkey hunting. No, 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 no. <laughs> we, if we get on turkey hunting, this podcast is going downhill quickly. Um, you know, the truth to me is explaining things to people that may not know or have heard about a certain situation, about a certain idea, about a certain fact I'm a scientist. I'm a scientist by training. It's what I've built my career around. And so when I speak to truth, I speak to that first one that you talked about, which is the objective truth. And I think as as hunters, we've almost been sometimes afraid of the objective truth. Because what if it showed hunting in a bad light? What if it actually was something we didn't want to hear? And so sometimes we've cherry-picked the truth. And that's one of the things that at Blood Origins we're going to, we've put it sort of into our internal DNA that we're not going to be afraid to tell the truth when it's something that we need to hear. For example, I'll use an example immediately. Zambia. In South Luanga, there was a scientific study that showed that the moratorium on trophy hunting between 2013 and 2016 caused the lion population to go up. That's a great piece of science. If you look at the data, it's obviously with every piece of science, and I'm a scientist, every piece of scientific peer-reviewed literature, you can always find something to cherry pick. But for this part, I'm not going to cherry pick it. I'll take it for how it is. As hunters... If we were doing our job and we understood the population was going down, we as hunters should have put a moratorium on ourselves. If we knew that the population was going down. The problem is in that situation, you've got a layer of economics and you've got a layer of livelihood in that lions pay big, big dividends in the outfitting world in Africa. And as such, if the hunters said, we're not going to hunt lions anymore, the governmental concession fee of that block would be exactly the same price 
without lions. And so they've got this they've got this moral economic dilemma that I think anyone in any situation, whether it was hunting or not, would have a very, very tough time digesting and working their way through their brain because it comes down to livelihood. It comes down to feeding your family. It comes down to making a living. Um, so to me, the truth is object. It, it, it is objective and it's showing something that's people may not be aware of because we live in echo chambers. We live in very different parts of the world that you just don't sometimes get exposed to. And as, and through blood origins, I feel like that's one of the things that we have to do. Like I saw an, an article today. Do you know that Japan has one of the largest growing hunter populations? Yeah, I've uh, I've heard about that. Yeah, across all across uh, the Asian countries. Yeah, what amazing? What do they hunt? So it's it's not about what they hunt; it's about having hunters to remove the pest species that are interacting with agriculture, like boars oh, and okay. certain uh, duck species and certain bird species. And in Japan specifically, here's the kicker. Hunting is becoming popular because of manga comics and the female hunter that is in this manga comic. Oh, wow. So there's objective truth. I know that's not what you expected in terms of an answer from me at <laughs> no, the end. Awesome. But that's, that's where we sit. Us, that's where I believe we need to seat ourselves in that we – so you've – you know, we talk about the truth. We have the, the truth series where we get up and we do a talking head about a certain topic. You don't see me beating my chest. You don't see me screaming or yelling. But rather you hear me very measured in a very measured way put across what I see and what I know as truth and what I know as fact. And there's a there's there's a little bit of, you know, there's a little bit of dramaticism in the way that I speak. Because I know that the inflections of my voice with the accent helps deliver the truth. So. Totally, yeah. That's, I, in fact, this afternoon I actually just did a workshop for a group of people on the art of and power of storytelling. So it doesn't matter what your message is or who your audience is. There's a way to deliver it, to get your message across and have impact. And one of the key things on that, that I taught was that information without emotion is soon forgotten. So, and you're, you're very good at it. Trust me. So. Well, no, I think I, that's what we started with, right? When we started blood origins, it was, it was important to, sh you know, hunters are supposed to be, if you had to moniker hunters, hunters are these grizzled individuals that have no heart and have no emotions and don't cry. And it almost, I almost take pleasure in the fact that when we interview someone that we get to peel back the onion layers and people cry in front of us that typically say they never cry in front of people. And that's the emotional side of who we are as hunters. And, 
you know, I think one of the, the key things, and this is where the manliness comes in. When you take a life, there's inherent sadness in taking that life. And people will say, oh, no, no, I never get sad. And I'll just say, nah, I think you're just bullshitting. Because if whether it was fleeting, that tenth of a second after the trigger pull, that moral fiber of remorse, like did I have to pull the trigger, almost kicks in to those that walk up to the animal and cry over the animal or, you know, give thanks. And there's the there's a there's a gradient of, you know of of remorsefulness that comes with what you know what you just did, which was you just you you span the gap between life and death. And you are now a participant in that cycle of life that without, you know, there is no life without death. That's a very simple statement. And that is the single principle that this world drives upon. There is no life without death. But a lot of people don't believe that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There was supposed to be, uh, everything is supposed to just eat plants and grass or whatever that, uh, theory that exists out there. So had, had to do with Adam and Eve and the apple goes back that, that, that belief goes back a long time, a few thousand years. So. Well, I'd correct you. It's um, not a belief. It's, it's, it's what, that's how, that's how things work. Yeah. It's no, how totally. mother nature works. Yeah, no, I was I was referring to the to the belief that people hold that there shouldn't be life and death. Things should oh, just right, be living right. and eating vegetation and not eating mm-hmm. each other. So mm-hmm. that that's kind of the influence of uh, of some very ancient writings. So um, good perspective on truth. Uh, yeah, I mean it's one of the things we principle we uphold here on the podcast too is giving people truth and facts and information in science, but then also trying to present the multiple sides of a story. Last summer, we did an episode on a wolf controversy um, that happened here in British Columbia, a celebrity wolf that got, that got harvested by a hunter, caused a big kind of uproar. And we did a whole episode on that. And you know, kind of went into the history of wolves and actually ended up talking about Japan. They actually ex- er- eradicated the wolves on that were naturally on Japan because of a fear of rabies and trying to protect these these very valuable horses that they had. So, like, you know, there's a balance to the story. People people believe they were persecuted because uh, they were, you know, as a species all over the world. And after that episode, you know, we had, I got phone calls from um, wolf organizations kind of not in favor of hunting and trapping. And we had long conversations about that. I had hunters come out and write to us and say, you know, um, you said some things that challenged the way I think. And I look at things differently now. So that's what we try to do here. And, and um, super excited to hear your views on a bunch of bunch of these topics we're going to get into so hey everybody it's mark hall your host and it's curtis hall the co-host so this episode is being sponsored by the bc firearms academy 
the BC Firearm Academy is British Columbia's most experienced team of firearms educators and safety educators. Uh, they focus on a lot of different areas, but for our listeners, they do provide training to get your firearms uh, license, your federal firearms license, and your British Columbia Corps, your hunter training license. They got locations all over the lower mainland uh, in British Columbia. They got off their website, they got tons of like online courses as well as classroom courses and they're COVID compliant. So there are training classes uh, starting to happen now. So if you're listening to this because you're learning about hunting and you're trying to make the decision and stuff and you live in the lower mainland British Columbia, then go down there and sign up and get your core and your pal. You can start some of your pre-learning online with them. One of the things they got on their website, which is really cool, speaking of like truth and facts and stuff, is they got a really large database of the frequently asked questions about everything to do with hunter training and firearm ownership. So um, that's pretty cool. They got all the forms that you need. <clears throat> and this is something I also really like about, about the BC Firearms Academy. I follow them on social media and on their website. And I don't know if I've seen this anywhere else. Maybe you have it on on yours, Ravi. Is they have one hundred percent five star ratings from their from their customers that have been through their hunter and firearm training courses. Like that's just un unreal. And I've seen in business classes before, like uh, speakers that talk about you know motivating businesses to go, kind of go to a higher level. And one of the things they say is, don't just create a satisfied customer; create a customer that raves about your business. And it really looks like the BC Firearms Academy is right up there, top shelf, doing that. So, bcfirearmsacademy.ca. Welcome, Robbie Kroger. Happy to be here. Founder of Blood Origins, the truth about hunting. Yes, sir. So you're native to South Africa? Mm-hmm. Well, native to Mississippi, I guess you can call me now since I've been in Mississippi since 2003. Okay, so so proud American? Proud American, absolutely, 1,000%. Awesome. And a member of the global hunting community. Yeah, part of the global tribe. So tell us a bit more about Blood Origins. You know, so before you do that, this is what I'll, this is, so this is another, this is not a lob. So there's a speaker, a business speaker, speaking of that, uh, it's got some stuff on Netflix. I think his name's Simon, Simon Sinek or something like that. And he talks about businesses. Businesses do something. This is how they do their business. And he says, what you really need to do is to go to the heart and say, why do you do that? What is your why? What is the why of Blood Origins? Why did you create it? It's a lot of work, man. You know, it's, it's, it is a lot of work and it's a passion project of mine right now. Um, and every day I just get fueled more and more and more. And the why, it may seem cliche, but it's pretty simple. I was, I was raised in a country that the opportunities to hunt, even though my father and my grandfather were huge hunters, I didn't have them. And so I never knew what I was missing out on. 
And so living in America now, being an American citizen, understanding the privileges that the American lifestyle allows you to have, the public land system, the the gun laws, the opportunities that you get to interact with the resources, that's not lost on me. And so I've got two young boys, nine and seven, that I want them to have that, that opportunity that I never had. And because of that, I will fight and I will fight every day. Um, and the reason why I can fight and the way that I fight is that I know what it's like to not have it. And I think it's very difficult for people who have been raised in America or even in Canada to understand is that you don't know what you have until you've lost it. And you may say we'll never lose it. And there may be people out there that disagree with the, the, the moniker of a death by a thousand cuts. I've seen it happen in South Africa in terms of guns. And you've seen, you know, bits and bits and bobs of it here in America when it comes to hunting. But I don't want my kids to be able to not say, well, I don't have that opportunity anymore. So that's really my why behind Blood Origins. But Blood Origins started as me exploring because I was a late adult onset hunter and he started hunting when I came to the States. I really wanted to understand what hunting should mean to me. It sounds like a very strange way to put it, but I needed to understand what it should mean to me because I had now two young boys, 18 months, seven months old, that I wanted them to raise, be raised as hunters. So I was like, geez, how do I teach them? Not just teach them the ways of being a hunter, but the ways of the ethics of why we do what we do. And Meat Eater at the time was, a, and, and still is, a phenomenal show. Uncharted at the time still is, was, was probably those two were the only shows that you could look at and say, okay, I, 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 I see a different thing there, right? I couldn't find it anywhere else. And then I couldn't find this, this tangible, like, you know, spear into the heart of explaining what you are and why we do what we do. And so I decided to build it. And I'm not a cinematographer. I'm not a cameraman. I'm not a videographer. I'm not a production guy. I'm a scientist with a vision. And I'm also a strong Christian. And so I was watching a Christian testimonial project called I Am Second. If you've never watched it and you get off this podcast and you start watching it, Mark, you will be hooked and you will watch 10 of them, 15 of them. They are in your face. They are emotional. They are heartbreaking. They are, and they're all, there's no B-roll to them. It's just, and the way that they film is just, it's uncomfortable. And it's just, it draws you in. And I was like, I've never seen this in the outdoor space. And I was like, that's what I want to replicate. I want to replicate that style. I don't want a three-quarter turn interview. I want that person freaking staring down the soul of the individual on the other side of the camera, making them feel uncomfortable, like, oh, you're speaking to me. And so that's what we did. And that was four years ago. And it went from that to now a much 
bigger mission has been laid at our feet, which is you're now conveying the truth about hunters and you're conveying the truth about hunting. And, and it and really boils down to this. The non-hunting majority keeps our hunting lifestyle in place. And you've got the antis. For the majority, all of those individuals have never met a hunter and they don't interact with hunters. So how do you communicate to them who a hunter is? You do that through the way that we film so that it's the most authentic, most integrity-driven piece of content that they can watch about a hunter. Then we take it one step further and we interview non-hunters that interact with hunters. And we say, what is your perspective on hunting given the fact that you know hunters and you interact with hunters completely unbiased? Now all of a sudden you have a non-hunter speaking to a non-hunter saying, this is my perspective on hunting because I'm with them every day. And it's not self-serving any longer. And all of a sudden a non-hunter looks at another non-hunter and goes, huh, there might be something there. So that was a long-winded answer to a very simple question. And you're starting to get the flavor of when you ask a question of me, where we're going to go. <laughs> that's awesome. Because that's why people are listening. They want to hear you and less of me. So, um, our, yeah. our second and final question. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Welcome back to chapter two, part two of the podcast. No, this is, man, you know, the number one thing people tell us that they listen to our podcast because uh, they are long and they go deep is because they're learning and they're educating themselves. So um, you're, you're delivering. So do you think, we'll get into this a bit, but do you kind of think that in North America, some of the problems that we're seeing right now that we're going to talk about, do you think it kind of revolves or maybe sits heavily on part of this kind of taking all of this for granted, like, like you were saying? Mm, yeah, um, I think it's, I think it lands. So I think it lands squarely at the feet of the hunting industry. Um, I think for 30, 35 years, we've operated in an echo chamber of just looking at ourselves, pumping each other up. Um, we have created an industry that, how do I say this? I'll just say it. Uh, we've created an industry that celebrates the kill, celebrates death and doesn't celebrate anything else. Um, and you see that when it comes to branding and coming to, you know, it's just part of the, it's just part of business. And look, I, the, even though I said that, I get business and I get that you have to sell things and you have to make, you know, have to make money. And that's what the industry has done. We have, you know, it's interesting. We've almost like, gone from people that used to be outgoing to people now uh, industry or community that sits in the closet right nobody wants to talk about hunting no one wants to talk about being a hunter because we're in the closet now and you know just leave us alone and the 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 system really is if we get punched in the face if someone opens that closet and punches us in the face in the closet then we come screaming out the closet and we we beat everyone back and then when it's quiet we were trapped back into the closet and closed the doors. That's how we operate. Instead of, why don't we just come out of the closet, 
and we all come out singing, singing of the same sheet of music. This is how we're going to act. This is how we're going to speak. This is what we're going to post. This is how we're going to post. We're not going to fight amongst one another. If you want to go fight, if you want to fight, go back in the closet, close the door, and nobody see it and fight. You don't see the antis. You, the antis are like this collective machine that they don't fight amongst each other. They all sing off the same sheet of music. They buy billboards. Wow, we're not buying billboards, Mark. Somebody needs to send us $100,000 and we will buy some billboards and put some hunting type, you know, what is life without death? Put that on billboards everywhere. Let's think outside the box a little bit, people. We need a change. Absolutely, because they're using strategies that are incredibly effective, um, but we don't we don't neither adopt them or or think about that. We're just resistant to it because well, that's how they do it, right? And like, man, they get ahead of stuff like years ahead or years things. ahead, years ahead you know, scientific essays that come off of scientific essays that cite the previous scientific essay. And we build up an entire, or they build up an entire scientific literature base around a particular philosophy. Like it's, I do, I actually really admire the work that some of those groups do. I'm just like, damn, well, it's just, you got a billboard. (laughs) Yeah, it's just forward thinking, right? So we've got an. Ex- I'll give you a, an example that's happening like right now, today. Um, so Victoria, the state of Victoria in Australia, has uh, a duck season that is twenty days long and two duck bag limit. It used to be six weeks long, and twelve ducks a day. There's a lot of political nuance behind it, but I've challenged the guys down there. Why don't we think to next season? This season's done. Why, what are we doing now to prepare for the next season? Are we putting things in place? Like, can we go hire someone who's an independent contractor to collect duck data? Is there people that we can speak with now that are not hunters, that have an economic investment in duck hunting? the cafe down the street, the cafe owner that sells pies to the duck hunters every morning. Let's interview him. Let's interview her and get it beautifully shot that she says, I'm not a duck, I'm not a hunter. But those guys are courteous. Those guys come in. They, they, you know, let's think outside the box. Let's think to the next step. Okay, look. There's, this has happened. Let's fight right now, but we have to be thinking two steps ahead. Like I said on Sunday, what is going to happen in 10 years' time when we turn around in 10 years' time and go, ah, oh, I wish I'd thought about that 10 years ago? 10 years ago is yep. today. Yeah. And I've uh, I've talked about that on podcasts, written about it, and, you know, and different things that – you know, everybody is still here in British Columbia is still very raw and sensitive about losing the opportunity to hunt grizzly bears in the province. And it was a big deal in 2018. Uh, everything kind of like peaked, but it started back in 1970, you know, with the province's first 
campaign to end the grizzly bear hunt and it just kind of like kept coming and it was you know here it would pop up there was an anti-black bear hunting campaign there was a moratorium in the early 2000s that went on and went off like within a year and it was like all the signs were there and hunters did exactly like what you said they went back into the closet and it came out again and everybody was shocked and i'm like well why would you be shocked it's like graph it it's probably actually probably in a predictable thing like the you know uh, some sort of sine wave or something like that when the next wave was going to come but yeah nobody was prepared um you know so we got this thing going on here in british columbia right now you've talked a little bit about it on your stuff and you know kind of a the whole thing of trophy hunting trophy hunting ban um is kind of cropping up uh trophy hunting needs to be stopped in order to maintain social license uh to protect those that hunt strictly for food and and you know this podcast is about you know canada Mm. and Mm. wildlife management conservation and responsible hunting in canada we started it because it was a gap, sort of like what you saw, right? But this conversation, this conversation is bigger. And it's why I asked you to come on the show because this whole concept of trophy hunting and how the narrative is being built around it is is coming from various global contexts. And it's coming to bear on certain types of hunting here in British Columbia. And I see a lot of stuff where I'm like, oh my God, like I know what Robbie would say to this, right? So that that's that's what I want to start digging into here now. So you talked about like there's this thing going on in Australia. We just saw Senator Bill 252 come up and disappear quickly in California. There's been a bunch of other stuff going on. What what do you see going on like like globally like it's is is there a pulse of things happening do you see a pattern like kind of at a high level man like what what do you kind of see right now so i'll break it down i think in the us given the administration change i think people are going to be emboldened to put forward more legislation against hunting i don't think it's driven by the administration itself, I think it's just an artifact of the administration being in place. Um, I will say this before I move on any further. Blood Origins is apolitical. I'm not red. I'm not blue. Because hunters aren't red and they aren't blue. We have Democrats and we have Republicans that hunt. So I don't have a political stance in Blood Origins, never will. We just stand for hunting. Whether you're a Democrat against hunting or you're a Republican against hunting, we will be against you um, because of that fact. Or we won't be against you. We'll just gently explain to you why you're wrong. Um, So in America, we've had obviously Connecticut stood up with their Bill 52 uh, banning the important trade of six African game species. Uh, Senator Bob Duff he tried that a couple of years ago. It got rescinded. He's trying it again now. Um, you know, when it comes to the African species, uh, we had the COVID uh, SB um, 
1175, I believe that was last year in Canada that we stood up and we were the first ones to get out there and say something about it. And through a technical loophole, because the Senate discussed after 12 a.m. on a certain day and they made the decision and they voted after 12 a.m., the vote actually was disqualified and 1175 died on the Senate floor. It made it through committee. They had a bunch of witness testimony come out of Africa to the, to the, the senators of the state of California. It made it to the floor and it died on the floor. Unbelievable. So, so what exactly was that bill? Just explain that for listeners. So that bill was initially, it was called the Iconic African Protected Species Act, very similar to Connecticut. But because of COVID last year, they redlined the bill to make it a wet market COVID bill, yet kept the entire language, the rider of the African, iconic African Protected Species Act in it. And it was so blatant, like you, you even looked at the red line and it was, it was extremely blatant. But anyway, it died on the floor. But from an African perspective, it's, you know, let me, let me back up before I dive down that rabbit hole. Um, obviously, you've got the, the, the black bear ban in, in California 252 that got rescinded. Uh, you have 32, Senate Bill 32 right now in New Mexico for the banning of trapping, total ban on trapping in the state of New Mexico. It has made it out of, out of committee, uh, but there's been some issues raised by the senators in that committee about the signs and the validity. Um, Interestingly enough, the person who was brought in for witness testimony was an animal rights activist. The Department of Game and Fish wasn't even asked to come in to put their opinion forward. So we'll see what happens when it, uh, it moves across the floor and then into the house. Um, you have another bill in New Mexico tied to guns that minors under 12 are not allowed to possess a firearm. And when I say possess, I mean shoot a firearm which would significantly curtail youth hunting in the state of New Mexico. And then the biggest one that is that we're all afraid of that we've been watching and we will continue to watch is at the federal level, at the D.C. level, and that is the Cecil Act, which is obviously named after the famed lion that got shot. And it is a... Um, I can't remember what it actually stands for now, but it's an, it's an acronym for the ceasing of endangered um, whatever. So it's a, it's a pretty much a total import ban of African trophies into this, into the United States. And so when you, when you take, forget about what's happening on the state level, um, you know, that's just individual erosion of things tied to hunting. And for the majority, they're, they're all tied to predators. Bears, bobcats, mountain lions, trapping of, of fur-bearing animals, all the, the, the charismatic things that are very cute and elicit a bunch of emotion and whatnot. Africa obviously elicits a bunch of emotion too, because it's very Disney-fied, and the, the message that is really being that we we push across and it's a very it's a very legitimate message is that you know you have colonialism 
that was the taking of the, the the putting of power onto another country by another country in the 1700s, 1800s, like Britain over South Africa. That's why I sound like a Brit is because the, we were a British colony. Um, and so, but today, when you think about regulations as the new colonial pathway, it becomes, we call it eco-colonialism. And so a state like California or the country of the United States of America, and this will get interesting. So for instance, Cecil Act, if it moves to the floor, I can almost guarantee you that the ambassadors of those countries that hunting occurs in will have something to say. Um, and that's really high level. Even presidents would probably say something because, for instance, South Africa, South Africa, 340 million U.S. dollars a year comes from hunting. That's that's substantial when you times it by 15 in terms of the exchange rate. And so eco-colonialism really comes down to we're going to put a regulation in place that would have some sort of bearing on the resource management of someone else, whether that be another state or another country. Um, so there's just a lot happening. Is it, Australia, there's something happening. Um, and I don't know if it's administration or people are just, you know, they're just getting emboldened to do more and more and more, or we're just becoming more connected in the world and knowing more things are happening around the world, you know, every day. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, <clears throat> that is a lot, a lot going on. Um, but a lot of this is being manifested by, by sort of these narratives that are lashing out against the people against hunters. Like, I don't know if hunters have done something wrong, but they seem to be the target as opposed to looking at things like particular species, high level, social, moral, ethical type things. It, some of these, these campaigns are definitely very rooted at trying to prove the motives of the individual. If the motives of the individual for trophy hunting, then that's a bad thing. There's mm. a narrative that that trophy hunting in itself, and I want to get more into this, trophy hunting is bad. Mm -hmm. Like if you just say it, oh, automatically it's on that side of the line. Everybody knows, you know, what what that means. And it I don't know if that's just the vehicle to kind of go at some of these these things like like personally kind of you know create that evil that needs to be defeated kind of thing right like that that uh might be an easier sell on the billboards um by selling you know what the people do the pulling of the trigger the taking of the life sort of thing and then at another level i'm thinking is part of this a manifestation of the public's interest in the wildlife resource and simply wanting to have a say. Like I still see accusations just like as early as the last couple of weeks that, you know, wildlife management agencies in North America are what they called 
like they're a captured agency. They're, they're controlled and they work to the mandate of hunters. And maybe some of what we're seeing in the call for bans, the lashing out at hunters is, is non-hunters saying, hey, this actually interests us now. And we got some different ideas on, on values to be derived and how and, you know, all of this sort of stuff. And I don't know if that's part of it or they're going about it the wrong way or if there's different things all mixed up here. But this targeting of hunters and this narrative that if you just say trophy hunting and associate anything with being trophy hunting, like a black bear, you know, I've been, been on that lately a lot. Like, I mean, Hey man, they're food. They're like no different than a deer. Um, is it, is it the trophy hunting? Is it hunters? Is it wanting to be involved in conservation? It's, it's a weird time. It's hard to sort this stuff out. You know, I think we've been dancing around, it, it, it comes down to the semantics, okay? It comes down to, well, to me, it comes down to semantics and it comes down to the difference between motivation and consequence. So let me ask you a question. How did we get a moniker of a trophy hunter? People saw it. Okay. They saw the real, they saw the real thing. Um, they saw, I could probably back it up to where it started in print literature. Um, and then probably accelerated one film came along and hunting became popular on film. More of it was coming out more quickly. Um, people that were, traveling the world that were hunting that were trying to document and show it to the public in almost real time like real real film footage they're really showing the public um, well showing themselves and the public was watching it right that's kind of part but of was how it I being made it. for the public no it was being made for the hunting industry audience that's the thing right so it was it was showing it in that you know, testosterone, you know, that's why the show's ended. It's like, Hey, got the animal congratulations. And the show ended. Exactly. You know, um, because, because a hunter, you know, they'd be like, yeah, well, whatever they came in and skinned it and cut it up. And like, for me, it's like, well, I spent the next two days swearing. Cause it was like hard to pack it out. Like that's, that's the reality. But, but that moniker, I mean, it was created by ourselves and by the hunting industry. And I do believe when I say industry, I mean the commercial aspect. Like I, th I think there's a hunting community and then there's a hunting industry and there's an industry of the ones that need to make money off of it. Right. Right. So they, they created something. We created celebrity hunters. They, we made them into like movie stars and everybody wanted to be them. It's like, wow, travels the world, does all this stuff. What a wonderful life, right? It's like, hey, I'd love to just quit and get paid to hunt, right? So we we created these, these icons, gave them trophies and awards every year. And I think this was all in plain view of the public. And I agree with you. It was being done for other hunters, but not taking the consideration of like, 
So if you actually stepped out and looked through the window, what is this? How could this be interpreted, right? So yeah, we they created a hunter, a trophy hunter, right. a collector. Right. No, and I think that's the key. It's like if you take that step back and you look through the window as a non-hunter, you look through the window and you look inside the echo chamber. What do you see? You pick up magazines. What do you see? You look at social media feeds. What do you see? You see a community that celebrates killing. And that's what you focus on 95% of the time. Okay. And again, let me reiterate. I don't think that is wrong. Okay, because that's what we what we do where we hunt and we kill. That is part of hunting. Okay. However, when you look at the data and so it's it's difficult for hunters to get out of this whole tribalism component of I'm a competitor. I want to drag this animal back. I want to show my community. Look at what I just did. Look at the massive animal I just killed. I'm proud of it. You should be proud of it. I should get the acclaim for what I just did. It's inherent in us. It's inherent in our community. It's almost like, I don't know how you stop that. And whether, you know, that's the the, the, the classic, that's just what we do. Okay? See, I've, I've written about that exact concept because I think it's genetic. It's it's It goes back hundreds of thousands of years that communities and tribes and groups, like their their existence depended on the success of a hunter. So when a hunter came back, it was displayed, it was celebrated, there was pride and everything because people's lives depended on it and the responsibility of a few hunters in a community, they were carrying a lot of weight on their shoulders, right? So I honestly think those of us that are expressing that genetics from the dawn of human civilization, that is inherent in us. It is inherent in us to say, look at what we've done. And there's a celebration to be had here. Indigenous people still do it, right? Look at the whale harvest in the Arctic and stuff, right? Like, it's- Yeah, but they're celebrating everything, Mark. They're celebrating yeah. the, the dough coming back, right? They're celebrating. It doesn't matter what comes back. That's what they're celebrating. And we don't celebrate everything. We celebrate the big trophies. And that's what gets the most likes and social media today has exacerbated that. That's why, you know, you asked me, why do you think we have all of this issues today is because information is so accessible today. 30 years ago, there was no social media. There was no email. There was no internet. And so the, the pictures that were being sent were being sent via regular mail to people. Like, here's a picture of the, the thing that I just killed. And it wasn't getting out. So now that now that the world has a lens, now that the world has a window into the hunting community, we cannot put a curtain over that window. We cannot black out the window unless we just retreat into a social media bubble that nobody else gets to interact with and that's what hunters do. We have to rem- we have to now cognizantly think okay, if they can see us how do we change what we do and how we portray what we do? And that's where the moniker of trophy hunting needs to change. It needs to move away from 
a motivational phrase, which is trophy hunting, to a consequential phrase, which is conservation hunting. So, as an example, I'm going to go to Africa. And Africa is an easy thing to use. Okay, so I apologize for using African examples, but it's just an easy way to put the example across. I'm going to go to Africa and I'm going to hunt an elephant. If I was to use the trophy moniker, people are going to lose their shit. However, if I took a conservation hunting mindset to everything that comes out of that hunt, all of a sudden that becomes a meat hunt and I'm supplying 8,000 pounds of rich protein to a rural community that has none. Show that. It becomes a depredation hunt. I'm now, that elephant has been shown to be raiding the mashambas of the communities, laying waste to an entire year's worth of crops for the entire village in one night. That's why we took that animal. It was a conservation consequence. The consequence, the reason we went and did that. Here's the, here's the trick. The reason why we went to do that was for those two things. However, internally in the heart of that individual, he probably didn't do that for those two reasons. He went there because he wanted to hunt an elephant. But that element, tying back to your Daramont issue that you have in Canada, is there is a social license for what we do with resources. So is the social line, the social, the social license does, does not look favorably upon me leaving Canada and going to hunt an elephant because I want to hunt an elephant. The social license is okay and is probably thumbing you up if you're spending your money to go and help a poor African village take care of an elephant problem that they have that would be an absolute godsend to the community in terms of protein, in terms of the 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 now the not the loss of the the crops as well as the money that gets funneled back into the community above and beyond those two elements so the question is how do we get everyone to talk about the latter and not the former and from my perspective it's just creating a peer-based pressure movement that Everyone starts seeing people talk differently, respond differently, act differently, push message differently. If you're going to put the picture of the elephant up that you are proud of in a trophy type pose, maybe there's 10 other photographs associated with that with all the villagers smiling. And the entire comment is about what you did for the village. 
versus seeing how big the elephant's tusks were. Now, do you think the the general public that's looking through the window at this is is still going to go? We don't buy it because Absolutely. because nothing else matters because the motive of the hunter is what we're focused on. And like you said, that person may have went there because they just wanted to hunt an elephant and the experience of that. And I've seen these narratives put out there before in the hunting world. Uh, someone came up to uh, British Columbia and fairly famous person sponsored, went out and harvested a big Tom Cougar. But the whole entire narrative was about how this cougar had been taking livestock for a couple of years and the biologist had him pinned and, and like this one person came up, but it's like the other 50 cougars that were taken out of that management zone that winter weren't doing exactly the same thing. Right. So it's like, you can't use that narrative every single time, but when it comes to what the public is saying, trophy hunting is is that mode of what they believe in your heart is. And then they're saying, we think holding that type of motive is wrong. And, and to me, that really drills down on this narrative about what trophy hunting is right now and why most people think it's bad is because they're saying, nope, we're not, we're not buying any of that. It's just like, what is your first and foremost motive? And some of the discussions I've seen lately here in British Columbia and, you know, others that are, that are chiming in on it on social media is people have drilled down to that and said, yeah, it's about the hunter's motive. But some people have said if their primary motive is for food, but their secondary motive is for trophy, then that's trophy hunting. That, that, that second part, like if I harvest a black bear and I'm harvesting it for meat, but I skin it and bring the fur out. That's it. That you're trophy hunting and that needs to stop. That's what we're against is that you've got an interest in something other than, than the meat. And I, I don't know if this is like what everybody believes, but it seems to be a little bit of what's at the heart of the matter. And, and partly why trophy hunting is being labeled as this bad thing because of the motive is not about meat. How does someone know someone's motivation? Exactly. And that's what I, no, 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 I'm, I no, no, no. I'm just saying, unfortunately, it's a, it's a consequence now of history. Okay. It's a consequence now of all the things that they've seen. And so let's, let's not, let's not beat around the bush. We're not going to solve the motivation consequence narrative change overnight it's going to require consistent messaging different messaging it's going to require when you go do that elephant hunt maybe not creating a hunt video of it but maybe creating a village video about it and capturing content of the village elders two minute pieces of content explaining why they want people to come hunt. Let's not have the, the, the white American talking about conservation in Africa. Just put a camera in front of the chief and let someone translate what he's saying. 
okay? It's this idea of let's think outside the box. Let's let's get different content. Let's constantly push different content. That's where we're going. And it's not going to happen overnight, but it's going to change. It, and I, you know, you feel the tide changing. I feel it. There's people talking about things that they typically have never talked about before. And it's just going to take more and more people. And the influence model in social media is powerful. Like we've noticed it, right? I get humbled every single day that someone goes, I'm doing this because I saw you do it. I'm like, dang, you know, someone just sent us a, a message. <laughs> and I'm amazed by, he says, I'm canceling my Hulu account because I'm going to give that money to you. Now, all of a sudden, now the burden is, you know, it's like, whoa, okay, that's amazing. But it's the influencer model and the influencer model is powerful in that people will see and then they will, they will replicate. And as you grow, as, as everyone grows, you grow, we grow, the people that follow us grow, that, that message starts beating harder and longer and bigger into different communities. And it's not like we'll ever peer pressure people out of doing what they want to do from a hunting perspective, but we'll also make them think. You know, a simple question. Hey, do you think what you just did is helping or hurting hunting? Shit, that's a powerful question right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I think a fear that probably exists in a lot of people that what's, what are we going to be lost you know, what hunting opportunities are going to be lost in this transition of leading by example and, and taking, taking time. I see a lot of knee jerk reactions to stuff that's right in front of us. Um, you know, it's kind of like house is on fire, but you're thinking about the shop that you're going to build two years down the road, right? Like it's, it's, um, I think that's a challenge for people. You know, it's, it's not like we're trying to lead a cultural change in the absence of, of like real and present danger. Let's, let's put it that way. And, and, uh, that creates a little bit of chaos, I guess, in rational thinking and strategy development and hunting. Yeah, it's certainly time for change. Change is upon us. But how do we do it without losing what we're fighting for at the same time? Um, yeah. I, you know, I think we've got, it's, it's, it comes down to resources. At the end of the day, everything comes down to resources. Um, I think the hunting community has the most significant, one of the most significant resources you know, behind them, we've got a lot of rich people that hunt that could potentially do these these absolutely radically changing um, tactics, if you want to call it about changing narratives around who we are and what we do. Um, I think the other thing that really pisses me off sometimes is that the anti-establishment has these big celebrity mouthpieces that are very, especially in the influencer market, has a very loud, loud voice. 
We have our celebrities too, but they don't say anything. Justin Timberlake, you know, Justin Timberlake's a huge hunter. Yep. Really? Yep. Yep. He's from Memphis, Tennessee. He is a Tennessee boy. One of my uh, Blood Origins episodes was tuning his bow. Um, Usher. Usher goes to Tanzania all the time to hunt. There's lots. James Hetfield, lead singer of Metallica. His guitar is wrapped in Kuyu. Guy Fieri. You know, Diner, Diner's Drive-Ins and Dives, right? Yeah. His tour bus, wrapped in Kuyu. Chris Pratt. We can go on and on and on. All we need is a hundred of them. Get all hundred together at the same time. Drop the same message. Can't cancel a hundred of them. And maybe the message isn't like in your face hunting, but rather a subliminal gray message. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely a strategy that's used everywhere else. We've seen the celebrities weigh in on the wolf and grizzly bear thing here in British Columbia and, you know, have some influence and rallying people around it. Um, When the grizzly bear hunt debate was happening in British Columbia, I actually like kind of wrote about that and called out the international hunting community to say like, you know, you're not getting involved. Like nobody's saying anything. We saw television shows, you know, of people coming up to British Columbia and trying to get their first grizzly bear and shows like this. But then when it happened, wouldn't talk about it, wouldn't even acknowledge that it was going on because it wasn't really affecting, you know, them or their country. It's like at the end of the day, they could still go to Alaska. They could still like wherever to hunt a bear then after the decision was made, then everybody, all the big voices got in condemning it and actually condemning us, British Columbia citizens, for holding a vote about whether or not we wanted to ban grizzly bear. And I'm like, there was no vote. <laughs> it was, you know, it was a government that came into power that made a decision mm-hmm. from a lobby group. And so, you know, similar kind of thing, like we lacked you know, um, high profile people that were going to, to stand, stand up with, you know, the proper message. And, you know, one of the things that's happening, you know, right now with the trophy hunt ban kind of discussion here in British Columbia is this association between hunting bears and cougars and wolves and stuff in this province calling it trophy hunting and calling it trophy hunting, but it's being done in a context where a lot of the examples um, or comparisons or metaphors are made to the African hunting situation, the African trophy hunting situation. So we see um, the stuff in these papers, you know, they bring up stuff about Cecil the lion and um, you know, stuff comes out. Uh, Some of the stuff I've seen in, in some of the recent discussions was, yeah, black, black bear hunting is trophy hunting. And then somebody would say, well, no, actually, most people, I believe, eat 
the black bears. And then the person was like, oh, okay, well then, then that's not trophy hunting. So maybe we need to get down and develop a list of the species that define trophy hunting, like elephants and giraffes. Why would a giraffe, why would a giraffe be a trophy in your mind? Well, so this is, this is what makes me curious is why would that, why would somebody think that? And the reason I think that is, is one, because the narrative about the moniker, the trophy hunting, everything is about the African animals and the stuff that was on our pajamas when we were kids, right? And, and our mobiles over our bed. And the narrative is, is like, that's, that's bad. And that's getting pulled over to these discussions. I saw one person actually say, well, trophy hunting in Africa is, a, is an evil necessity right now for, for the moment. And I'm like, why would you use the word evil? Like, like wars are evil and genocide is evil. And like, but what we're talking about here is the, all these stories you're talking about, like community level, you know, uh, benefits and, and that sort of thing. So tell us a little bit more. And this, I really want people to know more kind of about like the African scenario, like mm. the hunting of these animals and, and bring, bring some truth and perspective a little bit about the reality of what's going on. I know in one of your videos a while ago, you talked about, well, let's talk about giraffes. Okay. And it's like, there's like five, yeah, five, five species. species or something. And, and, and how many of them are actually on the private lands that are managed for hunting concessions and stuff like unfold that for people. Yeah. So let's just use giraffe and giraffe is a good example. And it's, it's probably a good example of, of what happens in wildlife in Africa. So giraffes have been placed on Appendix 2 of CITES. Um, that is that there's now greater regulations about the trade in any product coming from a giraffe. There are a number of subspecies of giraffe, the northern, the Maasai, the reticulated, and the southern. There's also an Angolan giraffe, but they didn't bring that into the, the mix. So there's, there's four giraffes that they talk about. Um, the two most, the, the northern and the, and the reticulated giraffes are the ones that have the least population, the most concern, the ones that should be on Appendix 2 because those populations are, are struggling. It just so happens that those populations occur in countries that do not allow hunting. Uh, the, the reticulated, actually, no, I messed it up. Reticulated is the one that is... Um, it's not doing well. Maasai and Southern are doing very well. This, and, I'll, and I'll go to the Southern giraffe. Southern giraffe occurs in Southern Africa. Uh, 90% of the population occurs in two provinces in South Africa. Uh, 75% of that 90% of the population occurs on private game reserves that some of which, or probably the majority of which, have hunting as a, as a uh, resource activity, a consumptive use activity. And so you've got, to, you've got to think of African wildlife as an economic asset. And again, cliche, if it pays, it stays, is the, is the phrase that is used. And it's the same thing in the States. It's the same thing in Canada. And so in, in South Africa, if there was no hunting, and I'm talking you know, rural South Africa, rural Africa, rural Mozambique, 
if there was no hunting, the villages, the community would go out and take wildlife. I don't know if you'd classify it as poaching because there wouldn't really be any regulations around it because there's no real outfit or concession. So I'll just say they go out and take wildlife indiscriminately. And the value of that wildlife is one of two things. Number one, it's food to feed the family. Two, it's food to potentially turn into some dried resource commodity that then can be taken to the market and sold to make some money. But there's only value to that one animal, that one animal that's taken. You bring hunting into the fold and many, many other value systems get brought into play. The fact that the food is still there is very much still there. There's also the opportunity for a job. There's also money being put back into this to the into the community. So schools and medical. All the things that you would typically have access in the first world is now available. Boreholes are sunk. Farming is is invested in. And wildlife flourishes because all of a sudden that wildlife is now an economic asset that they want to protect because they see it's now valued fivefold more, tenfold more, a hundredfold more. And so that's the model. South Africa started it. South Africa in the 70s had 500,000 head of wildlife. Today, South Africa has 26 million head of wildlife. National park sizes haven't changed that much. So where's all the wildlife? All the wildlife are on private reserves because they know that they make more money on wildlife than they do on agriculture and cattle. And the consequence of making more money on wildlife means more biodiversity, more non-game species, more insects, more flowers, more forbs, more trees, better ecosystem services because of hunting and because of the conservation of wildlife because of hunting. And so that is the model of Africa. And so let's go back to giraffes. The question, what is a trophy, is a very, very good one. And I actually may use it in my talking head on Sunday. I've been looking for a topic and you may have just inspired me. Because what is it? What is the trophy? The trophy typically, if I think if you had to ask a hundred anti-hunters or non-hunters what a trophy is, it would be the grip and grin. It would be the thing that they see. It would be this thing of very large horns or very large antlers or very big mane or very big tusks. That to me is the, would be the classic definition of a trophy. That thing that gets put on the wall. That's the trophy. It's that, you know, what is a trophy? A trophy, a trophy is something that you win. The trophy is something that you hold and you put up on a on a on a mantle. Um, so I think it was and it was won. The trophy was won in a... Go ahead. Sorry, say that again, Curtis. Well, so, yeah, so, something physical that you can actually like yeah. take, like you know, nothing, nothing in your in your mind or your heart that was the the true meaning of the hunt but it's it's something physical that you could be like hey look look at this okay i like that definition mm -hmm. it's physical what do you think mark and 
I also think there's like a word play, a word association, right? So if you say, just say trophy, people think back to their childhood when it was this wooden thing with some brass and engraved in first place. And it was awarded at the end of a contest where there was a winner and a loser, right? In a sport that was for fun, mm -hmm. a game. Now we've borrowed this word that has a meaning within our society and said, and again, so looking in from the outside, like we called it trophy hunting to start out with way back when, like it, that wasn't forced on us. But then. Do we know the going, history of the word? I don't know. So maybe that maybe that's that's a personal truth that that hunters called it trophy hunting. I think a person would have to go back into like the old original, like some of the early writings, right? Of you know, and wouldn't that be a freaking? Wouldn't that be a? Yeah, what's the word yeah, I'm looking totally. for? That we actually created the word that's used being used yeah. against us. Yeah. No, I. But so I. That's. That's a hypothesis. It's a working hypothesis that that hunters created that, but but we continued to use it. So the outside is looking in, and going, well, they're calling it trophy hunting, and so trophy contest a sport. They some people call hunting a sport. It's a game. It's a contest to dominate, win, blah blah blah. blah, blah. And in this case, they're actually going, oh my god, they're taking the head off this thing and putting it on their wall, and that's what they're calling the trophy. That's not the thing that my kid won in soccer. Like, so yeah it's it's funny that you say the physical aspect because you could argue if go ahead if you were to ask the public say what you know like yeah. what you originally said what would the public say is that meaning and that's what i that's what i think it would be because of that word association so and the public thinks that because of what they see and hear and read yeah. You know, it's interesting. Someone could say a lot of, you know, you, you, I think we've tried, you know, that, and I've even said it, like I went for the trophy of an adventure or the trophy is the meat. But so how do we stick that? How do you stick the trophy into the meat. And I think to Curtis's point, the meat is, the meat is not immortal, right? Uh, and the immortal is not the right term right there. Um, the meat is consumable. It's consumable. It's, it's just not going to be there forever, right? You're going to, it's going to be gone. Um, the adventure was there in the moment, maybe for a couple of weeks after, and then, You'll think about it, but I don't know. I don't know. The the idea that the trophy, you know, and we and, and we've used the idea of memory, right? The memory on the wall, the memory because you don't you don't memorialize the kill of that animal. You're just you're memorializing everything around it. Um Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting dilemma, and I and here's I'll I'll put a, a complete different twist onto it that you're gonna be like, whoa, where did that come from? I've been talking to taxidermists, 
So the thing that the anti-hunters get us on is this idea of the trophy. It's the thing that you take with you. It's the horns. It's the the, the skull. I don't know so much about the, the skin. The skin I think you could get away with because, you know, you could buy, you know, cow skins and stuff like that. And they don't seem to have much issue with that. So I'll take skins out of it. Tech- well, unless it's the fur of a bear yeah, or if it doesn't have horns or antlers, then that's the trophy. Yeah, but I think I think taxidermists, what I'm about to say is I think taxidermists are getting so good that they could actually make faux bear rugs. And so what I'm saying is this, taxidermists are so good nowadays. You've seen it with bald eagles. You clearly cannot own a taxidermy bald eagle. Clearly, but you can buy one. It's made of chicken feathers. It looks exactly like a bald eagle. Okay. Taxidermists are so good nowadays. And especially with technology, the way that it is, you could shoot an Impala in Africa and not bring anything home and have the taxidermist do whatever you want and create a mount that is like literally identical. So now, are we still trophy hunters? If we didn't take anything? But we've still got the yeah. memory on the wall. Now you're talking about a mind shift in, in hunters. Well, I mean, guys have been doing that are with fishing for a long time. Like it's all... You, you take a picture, you, you catch a 500 pound sailfish, you take the measurements, you take a photo, you send it back, and then you throw it up on your wall. <laughs> but you didn't kill that animal. Yeah. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you, you went and ate it, like a big snapper. You didn't throw the big snapper back, you kept it, but you then made a replica on the wall of it. Yep. I think the replica, I think the replica game is. It has phenomenal merit, but it also would require hunters to say, I'm okay with it. Like I can, I can live with that. That's still going to represent what I took. Just like fishing. I love that analogy. Why are you okay with it being a fish and not an animal? That's, I don't think people have, I've asked that question before. Well, there's definitely a scale out there of lovable characters and why so much of the conversation right now is around predators. People aren't so worried about whether or not people are shooting prairie dogs and ground squirrels right. in farmer's fields, right? The conversation's not around that, right? They're just being left out there and hawks and coyotes are eating them, right? So it's it's there's definitely something in the narrative about how we are raised of what an animal is and what, what it isn't. So are you, are, are you talking about like the hunter not actually killing the animal or mm-hmm. killing it, but then bringing the meat and stuff and then, but not keeping the physical. Well, you couldn't bring the meat anyway, like from Africa, you couldn't bring the meat yeah. into the state. So you'd eat it there, yeah, totally. celebrate totally. the meat, you know, but you just don't have the taxidermy dip and pack ship it home. It just gets created when you get back. Um, yeah. 
So the the motion picture industry, like probably even more so than the taxidermist industry. So our our uh, our family ran a taxidermist business. <laughs> so Curtis used to work in one, but the motion picture industry, I think, is probably on the cutting edge of all of this stuff. Like I've seen things like like mountain gorillas, right? Like where they're like literally putting every hair, you know, in and like bristles and like just amazing eyelashes the you know the whole things uh one of the things they do in taxidermy is they take um latex molds of the antlers of the horns just pulls off like fingerprint detail and then those can be transported back put into a plaster cradle and a fiberglass mold and you can re-pour the antler that's how they make those those replica antlers of like all the famous you know world record bucks and all that kind of stuff. So that would be a kit that a hunter would take to Africa with them, right? Like you could even do like a death mask and plaster and stuff and yeah, have it recreated to, to bring that home if there was an importation ban on the actual part. So yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's narrative changing stuff, man. You know, it's, yeah. it's thinking outside the box of, of what, what can we do? Like for instance, here's here's something that I think we also are missing the boat on. I'll use BC as an example since you're in Canada. What has what have we as hunters done post ban to show the impact of the ban? Anything? Have we recorded some emotional stories of people that are having interactions with grizzlies and push that message out? Not in organized fashion, no. That's the kinds of things, right? When you start talking about, okay, let's go find places in Africa where hunting has gone. Let's speak to the people. Are they happy that hunting's gone? What does the wildlife look like? What does the game look like? What does the landscape look like? It's the proof. Internally, we, we say it all the time. We, we use narrative all the time. Hunting is conservation. If you ban BC, if you ban grizzlies in BC, we're going to see a lot less X or a lot less Y or a lot more human wildlife conflict. Okay. Are we not? Why don't we show that? Why don't we storytell that? And get ahead of the curve to start saying, building our own case, building our own story. Yeah, the guide well, what, that have lost that seasonal income and the families that that's affected and the communities that aren't getting that. I mean, what a grizzly bear hunt was before before it was banned was, you know, $25,000, $30,000 US. And I mean, you, if you had an outfitter that was running two of those a spring every year and you multiply that by every outfitter that was running grizzly bear hunts it's like that's a that's a good chunk of money that's not coming into those families who are relying on that income yeah could we do a simple little two-minute piece of how much money is not coming into british columbia any longer because nobody hunts grizzly bears anymore so the other side in the bear viewing industry has actually produced that very thing showing the economics and the revenue that comes into the province from bear viewing. 
and they're comparing it to past revenues of grizzly bear hunting and saying like it 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 pales in comparison on the economic argument they 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 claim more they bring in more economics than hunters do yeah for what yep. 15,000 people the footprint of 15,000 people to the footprint yeah. of eight people lodges and helicopters and boats and <laughs> anyway i'm just but, I, you know what i'm saying i'm speaking i'm preaching no, to the choir ab- here absolutely but and and one of the things i actually believe and this goes right back to our opening discussion which isn't happening in the province is with grizzly bears is start to fund research on grizzly bears that starts to answer these questions from a hunting management perspective like that's that's where i would start myself because rather than build a narrative that go actually this isn't what's going on right like we we're actually doing what we say which is science-based management um because we really don't you know we really don't know uh, at least when it comes to grizzly bears or bears here in canada if hunting has an influence on conflict you know so it's like nobody's really developed a body of literature around that so <clears throat> to answer the question could hunting be a tool to reduce that like we don't actually know but like why not collect the data if the data doesn't support what we'd like it to say then it's more a matter of like well what does it say and then where do we go from there right like that, right. that's one of the things i would be an advocate of is start building the case based on science there is a lot of grizzly bear science out there we know that in the southern half of british columbia no grizzly bear will die of natural causes it dies at the hand of humans and now that there's no hunting they're all dying they don't care how they die but they're dying by cars railroads and conflict kills hmm. so there is a body of literature around that mm-hmm. um yeah i mean i totally <clears throat> totally support what you're saying about the out of the botch thinking yeah and how about an infographic that shows how many grizzlies were killed prior to the ban how many grizzlies are being killed post ban and there's no oh, hunting. absolutely a simple infographic absolutely. yep and we're probably going to see that number exceed the hunting number you know within the within the decade mm-hmm. you know one of the other initiatives that i've toyed around with too is you know a few episodes back last fall late last summer we had uh, an indigenous leader on the show from Northern British Columbia, President Chad Norman Day of the Taltan Nation in Northern British Columbia. Their Taltan ter- territory makes up about 11% of the province of British Columbia. And their people's history is grizzly bear hunting. They have a history rooted in guiding. Are they autonomous cult- like in- it is in the United <laughs> States? Um, not self-government autonomous, okay, no, okay. Um, but a tremendous amount of, of, you know, power coming back to them to have, you know, a say in the direction. So they're, they're involved in mining, mining reviews, royalties, employment, like they're, they're really having a say of what, what is going on in their nation and their people feel they want the grizzly bear hunt back. They legally can hunt under the Canadian constitution, but they're trying to get the hunt back. They have in 
people in their own community, tall tan people that own guide territories that have lost that revenue, but they can't get it back because it's illegal for a resident or a foreigner to come in and hunt with that outfitter, even though the outfitter is indigenous and has constitutional rights him or herself. Right. So to me, there's a model to be looked at, which is based on the model that we have in Canada where the Inuit are given permits for the polar bears based on science and community knowledge, then they decide how many they need for themselves or want for themselves and the rest go out for guides. And that's where the hunters come in to get polar bears and whatever a polar bear hunt is, it's probably up there in six, six figures. And then, then that's part of the economic revenue for people in one of the most remote regions of the world. Right. So I look at that from the perspective of like, well, let's look at the grizzly bear. Why can't we have an indigenous led grizzly bear hunt Yeah, you, in you, the territories that they want it? If there's coastal nations that don't want it, then it's like, that's that's fine but so so that's some out of the box thinking that i floated out there well a it's bit, it, so. it is out of the box but it, it's already been proven it's called cbnrm it's called community-based natural resource management it was pioneered okay. in south africa by a guy called brian gosh what is brian's last name i'll remember um but it's it's putting the power to the communities it's putting the power back to decision-making at the communities, the communities get the money, the communities invest in their communities, and they have a say in the wildlife and how it is managed. And so it's a very, very powerful mechanism. And I totally agree with you. I think that that would be CBNRM is the way forward. It's the way forward for Bolivia. It's illegal to hunt in Bolivia today. Everyone hunts. It's the way to make it legal is through CBNRM and science. CBNRM will open up Vietnam for hunting. It's the only way that you can get buy-in and show that hunting benefits people, the consequence of hunting. That's why they're doing it, right? It's the consequence to that community, to that people, Aboriginal people in Australia opening up hunting or getting hunting sort of turned around could be through CBNRM with the Aboriginal traditional landowners. Yeah. And then coupled with that is wildlife habitat management as well. Right. And, and more, uh, use of traditional ecological knowledge in, in managing the land and predators and, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. It's, uh, yeah, that's interesting to know, you know, that, that model exists out there. So, I mean, I knew it exists in the Canadian Arctic with the polar bears. Um, but I mean that, you know, kind of coming back to the whole issue of trophy hunting and how public sees all this kind of stuff. It's one thing that we have not really seen a lot of in Canada is the challenge to the Inuit led polar bear hunt. It, it's it's just it it's just not a topic that you attack people over right when it's indigenous management 
but if it's not, it's like, it's a, it's a free for all on, on everybody else. Right. So, you know, I saw some conversations there recently that was sort of like, you know, along the lines, like, okay, it's okay that the Inuit people hunt polar bears cause they use them and the Inuit can use the tags to generate revenue, but the hunters that actually come and get the polar bears, well, they're trophy hunters and it's like, that's not good. So it was kind of like, you're kind of half in and half out and it's like you condemn the hunters, but then every, the rest of the support system around that, it's like, well, no, it's, I'm good with that. Yeah. So, talking on the both sides of their mouths, right? It's just stuff like that has made me really struggle with trying to understand what this means to the public because part of getting out in front of that is like, how is it seen? How is it viewed? What are the triggers? What, what's the language? What's the narrative? But when, when this whole notion of what trophy hunting is, is bouncing around like a, like a ping pong ball, (laughs) like it's like, can't put it in, can't put it in a box. And part of what I value that you're bringing to the table is like these stories from Africa, you know, because it's like, it keeps getting brought over here and everybody's like, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's like, that's the way it is. Right. And I'm, one of the videos you had out recently just sort of like kind of, you know, on this narrative of trophy hunting in Africa was about the, that there was two, there was one on the economics and you talked about that earlier and it was the South Africa said is about $340 million a year into the African South African economy right. from hunting. Right. So just, just to put that into context for folks, that's about, the revenue that mining generates for the government of British Columbia in the province. No, it's an amazing statistic. Um, and then you also talked about land. Yeah. So, you know, but the- yeah, it's a, it's when you, when you talk about wildlife and you talk about wildlife populations declining across the world, it, it, it's very often the number one thing that's causing wildlife declines around the world is habitat. Habitat fragmentation, loss of habitat, it's probably the number one thing. Lions in Africa, habitat shrinkage is the number one priority that's affecting lions. IUCN, scientific studies, it's all tied to habitat. Number two, it's tied to illegal offtake. Number three, potentially trophy hunting. And so when you look at Africa, the area that is protected by hunting concessions and hunting outfits, and I'm not just talking about high fence operations in South Africa. I'm talking about swaths of 2 million acres, 4 million acres in the middle of freaking nowhere. When you look at the land size protected by hunting and hunting outfit, it's double the size of the land that's protected by national parks in in Africa. So just from a habitat perspective, if you wanted to ban hunting, you'd be signing the death warrant not only on hundreds of thousands of head of wildlife, but all the other things, right? The dung beetles, the the 
the flowers, the spiders, the ground squirrels, the small carnivores. It all trickles down. It's this trophic cascade that just occurs because you decided to pull the only thing that's of value in those areas. Because that's when the landowner would revert to agriculture. Something. Something's going to pay. Or you're just not going to hold onto the land anymore. You're just going to walk away. And so you've got, you're not stewarding the land anymore. Or if you are, you're going to steward it in a way that's going to make you money. So what about the debate or the argument that lies out there about replacing trophy hunting in Africa with the wildlife viewing? Yeah, so this that seems to be the big one that's always yeah. talked about. Yeah, and there's places in Africa where ecotourism, wildlife viewing, is better for wildlife than hunting. Remember, hunting is not the silver bullet. Hunting is not a panacea. However, northern Mozambique, Nyasa, phenomenal wildlife. Unbelievable place. Huge granite inselbergs. It is picturesque. If you wanted to go take photographs of places, stunning landscapes, that's the place to do it. But it's going to take you two and a half days to get to Pemba. You have to spend the night in Pemba. Not many hotels in Pemba. When you land in Pemba, you're in malaria country already. Then you have to take a two and a half hour prop plane flight into Nyasa. That prop plane flight is very, very expensive. It's probably just as expensive as the flight to get from Johannesburg to Pemba for two and a half hours. Then when you land, the density of wildlife is low. You're not going to see much wildlife. And two, it's skittish because it's wild. You can take photographs, but that photograph is going to be very, very expensive. And, oh, I forgot, tsetse flies that are going to sting you like you have never been stung before. It's, take, it's like a horsefly times a thousand, and they're everywhere. So try and convince a, a wildlife photographer, a wildlife viewer to go to Nyasa, when they could just go to Kruger National Park, which is three hours from Johannesburg, malaria-free, tsetse fly-free, see a bunch of wildlife all the time, all day long, get all the photographs you want and leave. So there's areas in Africa that are suited for hunting. There's areas in Africa that are suited for ecotourism. There's areas that can do both. Namibia is a great example. Namibia does both very, very well. It's a a beautiful CBNRM uh, situation with communities, communal lands, and they decide what they're going to use their land for. They split it sometimes, hunting one block, ecotourism another block. But when you start asking, when you start saying, people, we're going to take hunting out of northern Mozambique, Nyasa, we're going to replace it with photography. The statistics are this. You need 77 photographic tourists in Africa to replace the one hunter in terms of the money that is spent. Now just consider the ecological fingerprint of 77 individuals versus one individual. 
the amount of water, but just think about the amount of water bottles that are consumed by 77 individuals on a three-day or five-day safari versus one, and the plastic waste that is generated just from that activity. And now you've got 77 people times every day, all the time, because it's a volume business. Wildlife viewing is a volume business. That's why it doesn't work. It works in some places. Again, I'm not saying it's it doesn't work. It works very, very well in some places. But for the majority of Africa, for the majority of rural, rural Africa, nobody wants to go there. Who wants to go there? Only hunters. Yeah. Yeah, This it's a similar thing here in British Columbia when they talk about like the bear viewing, right? And the economics, it, it works on coastal British Columbia. So you got the big international airport in Vancouver, people come in, they're easily put on another plane or a boat, moved out to remote areas, grizzly bears on the coast will congregate, you know, uh, places in low tide on the salmon streams, um, some of these places have actually got like viewing platforms built because it's just like you don't need to go look around for them because um, they just they show up in the same place. You come to the interior in the Rocky Mountains where we are, and when I'm out hunting in the fall, it's like I am looking over my shoulder like every ten seconds, and everything I do, I'm I'm got my wits about me because of an encounter with a grizzly bear, they're there, the signs there, everything's there, but I can go year after year after year and sneak in and do my thing and come out and never see one. So it's like, man, if I'm paying, <laughs> you know, I mean, outfitters would find them in the springtime, but it's like, if you had to bring in like, you know, one grizzly bear hunter in the springtime or 77 bear viewers, it's like, man, keeping those people on an interior grizzly bear day after day after day, you wouldn't last very long. You'd get like one star out of five on your, exactly. your rating. Exactly. So uh, kind of, I appreciate the, uh, the, the, the story there. Cause I can, I can relate to it here. So man, it's a uh, complicated stuff. Um, that so you, you, you talked about in one of your videos there recently about, yeah, there's waves coming right now at hunters, all these various things we talked about at the start and hunters can push those back. But what are we doing now that in 10 years, we're not going to look back and go, we missed the boat on that. If you want to boil down some takeaway messages for folks listening around that theme, what, what, what should people be doing? What should hunters be doing? I think I can boil it down very simply. And I'm not saying that because it's way past my bedtime. Um, but I think you I think if, if we are to turn the tide on the perceptions of who we are as hunters, Hunters have to start looking at things that they do through the lens of a non-hunter. And if they can't do that, then they just have to ask this question of themselves. And we've already said it this during this podcast, which is, is what I am doing 
helping or hurting hunting? Is what I'm posting helping or hurting hunting? Is the way that I'm interacting with that commentator helping or hurting hunting? Is the way that I'm conducting myself in the woods helping or hurting hunting? Because it doesn't matter about likes. It doesn't matter about follows. It doesn't matter about all those kinds of stuff. You'll be very, very shocked at who is actually watching you. You never know who's watching you. There's lots of people watching. And so you've just got to start acting. And, and the way that we end our podcast is do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. Are you doing what's right to convey the truth around hunting? That's all I would say. Do, do what's right. Think about the future. Think about what you've, what you potentially could lose. And are you doing, are your actions today going to lose hunting for your kids and your grandkids in five years or 10 years time? If so, why are you doing that? Good message. Yeah. Good message. Very powerful message. And simple. It's an individual level question and individuals can take an action. Exactly. Yep. And I think that's, that's a key. I think there's always an expectation in hunting community like there is in the rest of society. Someone needs to do something. And in this case, the someone is every single one of us. And those questions that you posed to ask of yourself and everything that you do, I think is, is powerful. It's a, it's a good path forward for sure. Man, awesome discussion. Yeah, that was fantastic. Awesome discussion. Well, I appreciate you guys. I appreciate you having me on. Um, appreciate the thought for provoking content. Because that's the other thing we need to do is think. And that's what that question does. All that question does is makes you think. It makes you think. And if we think, if hunters just start thinking, gosh, Things would be different. Well, we can't cry over spilt milk. We can only see what what we can do moving forward. So. Exactly. Awesome, man. So just to wrap up here. Um, so just to remind you, this episode was sponsored by the BC Firearms Academy. So huge shout out and thanks to Eric and Carolyn and the whole crew at the BC Firearms Academy for for uh, supporting this really informative conversation. Um, BC Firearms Academy is all across the lower mainland. So go find them at bcfirearmsacademy.ca. If you're a new hunter, get your firearms license, get your hunter online course and read some of their frequently asked questions and their answers and get the truth about what it takes to own a firearm in Canada. Um, Curtis, you got a message about uh, folks for? Yeah, um, it's just kind of on a final note too. This is episode number forty. We've done forty episodes already. It's pretty cool. Um, you know, forty episodes. We're averaging 
two hours every episode that's 80 hours of content which equivalent of watching the entire extended lord of the rings trilogy almost seven times <laughs> that's a lot of content twice a month we, stuff yeah twice a month we know you listeners are running to open your podcast listening uh services just like a kid on christmas because we know you guys love us so much and and we love you guys and with that we uh we want to ask you guys something if you can go to itunes or wherever you regularly listen to your podcast leave us a five star rating give us a good review you know write some comments you know we get lots of lots of messages in saying that uh how much you guys love us and and all of that and yeah do that uh do that on itunes also we are now on amazon music we just got uh, just got loaded up for that, so now we are basically across the board from iTunes to Stitcher to Spotify, and now Amazon Music, Google Play. We're on uh, we're on all of it. So we would greatly appreciate that effort from our listeners. Thanks, and I'd I'd be honored to get close to the BC Firearm Academy and their hundred percent five star rating. So uh, just a. F- Another f- reminder, um, the Hunter Conservationist podcast is a supporting member of the North American Non-Lead Partnership. So we're starting to think about spring turkey season and doing some research on the non-lead turkey loads that are now available out there. So if you got questions about that, about non-lead turkey loads, they are a little bit different. Uh, they got some weird stuff out there where some of the shells have got like five, six, and seven shot all in one one shell and stuff, uh, drop us a line. Uh, we can help answer some questions or find you the people that can about the non-lead uh, turkey loads that are out there. And if you want to learn a little bit more, the nonleadpartnership.org. Robbie Kroger, Blood Origins, the truth about hunting. I um, hope you've learned stuff in this episode, everybody. Uh, join Robbie and his movement. Go to blood organ, bloodorigins.org. Follow him on Instagram. Uh, yeah, join his movement. It's global. It's inclusive. Thanks, Robbie. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you, boys. All right, everyone. We will see you in the next episode. Bye.